This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to Radio Parallax, currently sponsored by Doctors Clinic for Men. The only clinic in the Sacramento area devoted solely to the treatment of erectile dysfunction. Welcome to the program. We, uh, we say that we're supported by Dodgers Clinic for Men, but actually we need your support, dear listener. If you go to our website, radioparallax.com, you can pledge us via PayPal. If you go to our website at radioparallax.com, you can use the PayPal button that we have set up to make a contribution, and frankly, we need you to do so. We're setting a target for $1,000, which we need to raise over the next, let's say, four weeks. We're trying to produce quality radio here, and we need a little help. If we fail to make that $1,000, we're probably going to go off the air for a while. So, I'm not kidding. We need your help. In fact, we're still not completely up to speed here on being able to deliver you an hour worth of product, at least on today's program. We will try and do better next week. We're going to give you a half a show today that's original, and then go to our archives for part We have to admit we have a lot, and I mean a lot of material that we have not gotten to, but we need some time to sort it out and do it right. We will try to do that in the next couple weeks. But let us start this program as we like to do with On This Date in History. Our date today is the 23rd of June. And by the way, we hope you enjoyed that full moon that happened to coincide with the summer solstice this year. It was very cool. They were calling it a strawberry moon for reasons that are not clear. It did look sort of like a big (laughs) strawberry in a way being low in the sky. Because if you think about it, if it's the solstice and the sun is as high as it gets and the moon is on the opposite side, it means that the moon, the full moon anyway, is about as low as one gets. I was down in the Fremont area and noticed it skimming right along just above Mission Peak, which is pretty low. And we also encourage you to go out tonight and in the near future to take a look at the lineup of Jupiter, the star Spica, Mars, Saturn, and the star Antares. Antares is a little bit off the plane the others are in, but those other four are, you can just see the path in the sky that all the planets move through because they're up there and they're in the path. Mars rivals Jupiter in brightness, and it's just, it's, just, it's just really a pretty sight. It was really cool when the moon was in the mix, but it's now moved past full, and so it's a little bit out of the equation. But you know what? A month from now, it'll all be back again, and it's still going to look pretty good. All right, at this point, let's go on to On This Date in History, June 23rd. So in June 23rd in 1947 that the Taft-Hartley bill, which gives the federal government more leverage in regulating union activities, was passed, overturning U.S. President Harry Truman's veto. Still in effect today, it allows the federal government to prohibit strikes that are likely to cripple the economy, requires either side to give 60 days notice of a possible strike or lockout, and bans the use of union funds for political activities. As you may have noticed, corporate funds are not banned from use in political activities. On June 23rd, 1969, legendary Chief Justice Earl Warren, who led one of the most liberal phases of the U.S. Supreme Court, resigned his seat. 
Warren Burger was appointed by Dick Nixon to be the new leader of the Chief Judicial Office of the U.S., which right away started shifting the court to the right. We'd mean to talk about Earl Warren and, for that matter, Hiram Johnson on this program, and we're going to see what we can do about that. They were two legendary California governors and well worth our time to spend some time uh, uh, with a historian. On this date in 1972, the Higher Education Act of 1972 was signed into law by Richard Nixon. It included Title IX, which bars sexual discrimination in sports and other activities and greatly increases participation in women's collegiate sports. Unfortunately, it's also been a death knell to a certain amount of men's collegiate sports. Also on the presidential agenda that day was a little conversation with H.R. Haldeman about using the CIA to thwart the FBI's investigation of a break-in that had taken place down at Democratic headquarters at the Watergate. That uh, didn't turn out so well. This day in 1985, Eric Hyden won the first U.S. Pro Cycling Championship, a 156-mile race. Hyden turned to cycling after winning five gold medals in speed skating at the 1980 Winter Olympics. Dr. Hyden went on to become an orthopedic surgeon here at the Sacramento Medical Center of UC Davis. I did pass him in the halls more than once when I was an intern at that institution and can confirm the fact that he does indeed have legs like tree trunks. We caution, do not let him get you in a scissors hold. We're pretty sure that too will not turn out so well. Our quote of the day comes from Alexis de Tocqueville, who once said, Evils, which are patiently endured when they seem inevitable, become intolerable once the idea of escape from them is suggested. Our quote of the day comes from Salman Rushdie, who once said, What is freedom of expression? Without the freedom to offend, it ceases to exist. Our joke of the day comes from an exchange that took place while Muhammad Ali was flying to Manila for the famous Thrilla in Manila. Walking down the center aisle, the stewardess evidently counseled Mr. Ali to buckle his seatbelt. Ali supposedly (laughs) replied with, Superman don't need no seatbelt. To which the air hostess replied, Yeah, well, Superman don't need an airplane, so buckle up. Our anecdote of the day, and this one's a little bit dicey, but I think I'm going to go with it anyway, because it surrounds how it may be that not everybody has what it takes to be a madman Islamic jihadist. Here's a story. Apparently, an American who traveled to Syria to join ISIS fled the jihadist group because he said he, quote, found it hard. He was flown back to the U.S. last week to face charges that include providing material support to terrorists. Mohammed Quais, 26, the Virginia-born son of Palestinian immigrants, began researching ISIS online in 2015. And in December of that year, he sold his car to buy flights to London and then on to Turkey and Syria, where he joined the jihadist group. According to the FBI, he was asked by ISIS's members if he wanted to be a suicide bomber, and he answered yes. Evidently, Quais said he thought the question was a hypothetical test of his commitment. Thinking better of the whole affair, he then traveled to Mosul in Iraq, where he surrendered to Kurdish forces in the north of the country, later telling reporters he had become disenchanted with ISIS. Said Quais, and I quote, The life in Mosul is really, really bad. And it's not like in Western countries. There's no smoking. 
We do want to point out that with his commitment to smoking, that although he may not make it as an ISIS recruiter, he might just be in the running for the new Marlboro Man. And we're going to do our best to refrain from pointing out that he apparently would walk a mile for a camel. In fact, we're disavowing that joke immediately. We also want to point out that in his case, he apparently would not rather fight than switch. A reference which may be lost on some of our younger listeners. Our stat of the day, let's do two of them. Our first stat of the day is that light pollution caused by city lights is now so prevalent that a third of humanity cannot see the Milky Way in the night sky. This includes 80% of Americans and 60% of Europeans. Stat number two, apparently for the first time since 1979, America's cars, trucks, and airplanes emit more carbon dioxide than do its power plants. That's largely because plants are using less coal and more natural gas to generate electricity. And speaking of power plants, here in California, it was announced this week that they will be shutting down the Diablo Canyon nuclear plant. With the closing of the plant in San Onofre, this now leaves California without the ability to generate power through nuclear plants. The authorities don't seem to be too worried about this, however. They're pretty certain they can make up the electrical deficit with wishful thinking. But I'm sure this will lead to widespread rejoicing among the anti-nuclear knuckleheads out there. Including, as Mr. Millman likes to point out, the oil companies, the fracking companies, etc., etc. And by the way, we're hoping to bring on someone in the next couple weeks to talk about fracking off the California coast. And yes, this came as a surprise to us that this could possibly be going on, but there seems to be some pretty compelling evidence that it is. I don't mean fracking like, you know, on land. I mean on the offshore oil rigs. We will be looking into this. Okay, stats. All right, let's do, let's do more than one good news item, shall we? All right, good news item number one. It appears that the world tiger population is actually up. This marks apparently the first time in the last 100 years that the numbers of global tigers have increased. There's now estimated to be 3,900 of them. That's in the whole world. But anyway, it's 700 more than the last global estimates of five years ago, and we're happy to hear it. Good news item number two, actually from a lengthy article in New Scientist magazine, the June 11th issue, about how stem cells are repairing stroke damage. Piece by Andy Coughlin notes that people once dependent on wheelchairs following a stroke are walking again after receiving injections of stem cells into their brains. Participants in the small trial also saw improvements in their speech and arm movements. Gary Steinberg, neurosurgeon at Stanford, who was part of the team that performed the procedure on 18 participants, said that one 71-year-old woman could only move her left thumb at the start of the trial. She can now walk and lift her arm above her head. We don't want to get too excited about this. It's a small trial, but boy, this is exciting stuff. Good news item number three, also from New Scientist, because we do get a lot of good news from the world of science as opposed to, say, the world of politics, which is almost devoid of good news. At any rate, there's a small pilot project going on up in Iceland. They are showing up there that carbon dioxide can be safely stored in basaltic rocks. This finding could be used to help tackle climate change, especially in countries like India that have little sedimentary rocks of the sort that have been regarded as the best for storing CO2, but they have lots of basalt. 
The Icelanders found that when CO2 dissolved in water was injected into hot basalt deep underground, it rapidly reacted with the rock to form carbonates. For permanent storage, this is the ultimate in safety, said team member Jörg Matter at the University of Southampton in the UK. Carbonate minerals are really stable. The magazine notes that injecting CO2 into basalt is slightly more expensive than other storage methods, such as pumping it into into depleted oil and gas reservoirs, and it also requires a lot of water. But on the plus side, once it turns to stone, there'll be no need to keep checking that it has stayed put. Very cool. I got three more miscellaneous items from New Scientists I think I'm just going to go with. This first item may not be of uh, much value to those of us living here in California, but for people on the East Coast, well, it, it might come into play. Noted, the good people at New Scientist. Finely sliced in sandwiches, they are a staple of English picnics. But if you catch a whiff of cucumber while exploring the woods in the eastern U.S., you'd better watch where you tread. Because it turns out this aroma is also the smell that the venomous copperhead snakes emit when startled. And no, we can't explain the evolutionary value of this either. I mean, the normal reaction of people is to not to go, ooh, whoa, cucumber, look out! Unless, of course, you happen to be Edward McMillan. Been known to walk a mile not to eat a cucumber. I like copperheads better than cucumbers. Okay. You can take that up with Marlon Perkins. All right, speaking of rocks and things coming out of rocks, uh, it may well be that rock on the planet Mars is responsible for this methane that has been emitted and observed both from um, robots orbiting Mars and from the Earth. Now, on Earth, methane gas chiefly emerges from biological processes, and it was identified as being on the Martian surface back in 2003, and because methane doesn't hang around for long, something must have been producing it. Was it life? Well, yes, that still remains a possibility, but uh, researchers in France took a look and concluded that the methane might be stored in a reservoir of zeolite rock, which which is a sponge-like mineral with microscopic holes in it and channels that easily trap and can release gases. So we're still pulling for life on this one over zeolites, but research will continue. And uh, if you've ever gotten involved in that stirring debate as to whether man's best friend was first domesticated in Europe or Asia, we would have to step in and quote from the famous Certs commercial of years past. You know, Certs is a candy mint. Certs is a breath mint. Stop. You're both right. Anyway, genetic studies of dogs now indicate that it may well be that Dogs were domesticated twice. To make a long story short, these DNA uh, studies of of dog remains in various parts of Asia indicate that, uh, that dogs originated from two separate wolf populations in the eastern and western halves of Eurasia. This theory, we should note, is consistent with archaeological evidence that ancient dog remains from more than 12,000 years ago have been found toward the eastern and western ends of Eurasia, but not in the middle. Do you have some appropriate music for this? Yeah, an excuse to get the jingle bells with the barking dogs on the show. 
All right, as you may have noticed, there's been quite a bit of uh, brouhaha on television in the last month or two regarding Mr. O.J. Simpson. A uh, 10-hour documentary airing on ESPN took a look at uh, the life and times of O.J. And a dramatization of the entire fiasco of the trial, etc., etc., was done on FX uh, last month, I believe. And you know, in accordance with this, we're going to see if we can't bring... Mr. O.J. Simpson on this program in the weeks to come. We're sure he's going to be hard to get a hold of, but by God, we're going to see what we can do. We thought of the O.J. case uh, recently in regards to a, a matter involving someone who's in the Sacramento County Jail. There's some pretty darn compelling evidence that um, a man named Matthew Muller is guilty of quite a few crimes, among them kidnapping. This whole thing is a rather bizarre case. Apparently in March of last year, Denise Huskins was kidnapped in Vallejo. It made headlines worldwide when police mistakenly labeled the whole thing a hoax, then had to admit, well, that it actually happened, complete with bizarre details involving the use of drones, sedatives, and disguises. It turns out that the case against Matthew Muller is uh, in somewhat in jeopardy at the moment because his attorney, Tom Johnson, is trying to have all the evidence against Muller tossed out. The attorney's case, and he may not be part of the dream team admittedly, is based on the claim that Mueller, a Harvard Law School graduate and former Marine who served in Afghanistan, got arrested solely because he left his cell phone behind when he fled from a home he'd broken into and that police found it and searched it illegally to find out who the owner was. The search got conducted by Dublin police when Mueller broke into a home months after the Huskin abduction then executed a hasty retreat when the homeowner fought back. Johnson wrote in a motion filed in the U.S. District Court in April, this search was warrantless, unlawful, and all the evidence obtained after the search should be suppressed. The search was the genesis of the entire investigation against Mr. Mueller. It's quite literally the key that opened the door to the entire investigation and subsequent federal indictment. The search that Johnson objects to is one by which the Dublin police determined the number of the Samsung Galaxy cell phone by bypassing the screen lock. They did this by calling 911. Cell phones allow locked screens to be bypassed for emergency calls, then having dispatchers tell them what phone number made the call. Police obtained a search warrant and discovered the phone was registered to Muller's stepfather in Orangevale and eventually found their way to the family's South Lake Tahoe home. There, they arrested Muller and began seizing evidence at the home and elsewhere. Their haul included five drones, video cameras, and other items that resulted in Muller being charged in Contra Costa Superior Court in the June 5, 2015 Dublin home invasion and in Sacramento Federal Court in, in connection with the Huskins abduction. Now, Mueller is in custody at the Sacramento County Jail since he was arrested, while the legal maneuvering in his kidnap prosecution is going on across the street in the federal courthouse. Attorney Johnson says all the evidence supporting the charge against his client has to be scrapped because the officer's decision to dial 911 to get the cell phone's number was illegal, and it violated Mueller's constitutional rights under the Fourth Amendment. Johnson wrote, I'm sorry, I just, I just love this. Johnson wrote, Mr. Mueller had safeguarded his expectation of privacy by locking the phone with a passcode, adding that Mr. Mueller did not intentionally leave his phone behind to be meddled with by police. Johnson argued, 
presumably with a straight face. If a person has just burglarized a home and the resident's calling 911, the first and most likely reaction is one of flight to avoid arrest. Mr. Mueller did not intend to abandon the phone. It was simply left there in the heat of an escape attempt. It should be noted that federal prosecutors do not agree with Johnson's reasoning responding in court documents that, quote, a burglar has no reasonable expectation or privacy in something he places in an intruded-upon house, unquote. (laughs) And that, quote, a fleeing suspect has no reasonable expectation or privacy in the evidence he abandons, unquote. The prosecutors noted in their brief, the fact that the burglar kept the phone locked with a passcode is of no consequence. Objectively, the burglar had lost that phone forever. And we note with some sadness that uh, prior obligations prevented us from being able to attend the oral arguments uh, this Thursday morning before U.S. District Judge Troy Nunley because that just had to be a hoot. Sacramento B notes that Mueller's jury trial is scheduled for January 30th. Yes, January 30th, 2017. This abduction took place last year. It's June of 2016. But I think we'll lay off our dysfunctional legal system today, at least for the time being. Let's instead jump right into the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to The Week magazine, it was a good week last week for Canadian stings. With the news that a motorist up in Canada got ticketed for removing his seatbelt while giving money to an undercover cop he mistook for a homeless person. Dane Rusk, after being issued a $175 fine, said, I'm quite upset. I thought I was doing a good deed. And speaking of our justice system, as we were a moment ago, it apparently was a bad week last week for that system, with the news that a convicted burglar in Indiana is suing the homeowner who shot him after he tried to break into a garage. David Bailey confessed to the crime and served a one-year sentence, but he now wants David McLaughlin, who shot him as he fled the scene of the crime, to pay $100,000 for his medical bills and damaged shoulder. Bailey said... It hurts every day. I'm very lucky I'm alive. Well, I suppose he is, but are we? And it was an ugly week last week for hate speech with the news that, yes, right here in California State Capitol in Sacramento, a Baptist preacher told his congregants that the only tragedy of the Orlando nightclub shooting is that more of them didn't die. Pastor Roger Jimenez vilified sodomites in his sermon and said their deaths help society. Jimenez said Christianity condemns homosexuality and that the Bible teaches that these people deserve to die. It is amazing what idiots think the Bible says. Of course, we would add an addendum that if you actually do read the Bible and see what it actually does say, it's pretty hair-raising. But that is a topic for another day. And we're not sure whether it's a good week or a bad week for splitting hairs, but it was announced earlier this week that anti-Gawker crusader Peter Thiel demanded that the gossip site Gawker 
remove an investigative story revealing that Donald Trump's signature hairstyle may be the result of $60,000 hair extension treatments. Thiel's lawyers warned the beleaguered media company that the story was false and defamatory. Yes, someone is going to bat for Donald Trump's hairdo. By the way, just as a brief aside, I want to give Donald Trump the Jackass of the Week award for the fact that he has refused to give press credentials to the Washington Post to cover his presidential campaign. But anyway, back to Peter Thiel. It's been reported on this program and elsewhere that he apparently had quite a bone to pick with Gawker because they outed him as being gay. Thiel then took up the case of former wrestler Hulk Hogan in an invasion of privacy lawsuit and apparently under pressure to pay $140 million to Mr. Hogan, Gawker Media has now filed for Chapter 11 and put its assets up for sale. For the record, Radio Parallax has nothing bad to say about PayPal founder Peter Thiel. We think he's a heck of a guy and don't want to trouble him. All right, we like to close on uppers, but I've got an item here that's not particularly an upper, but I think is worthy of discussion anyhow. The Week magazine puts together in every issue a one-page item titled Briefing, and they generally do a superb job on it as they do in most of their summaries of news items. The briefing in the current issue concerns Saudi Arabia and the 9-11 attacks. I figure this is worth going into because I was talking about this redacted 28-page section of the Congressional Report on 9-11 with a friend of mine a few days ago, and he'd never heard of it. Well, he should have heard of it, and everybody should have heard of it, but a lot of people haven't. But noted the week, this um, 28-page section is controversial because they concern whether or not Saudi Arabian officials were involved in funding or supporting the hijackers. In 2002, the bipartisan Joint Congressional Inquiry conducted an extensive investigation into the so-called intelligence failures in the lead-up to 9-11. George W. Bush sealed the section covering Saudi Arabia's possible involvement, presumably to avoid damaging relations with one of America's closest Middle Eastern allies. Since then, the 28 pages have been locked up in a basement room at the U.S. Capitol. Lawmakers can read them, but are forbidden from revealing their exact contents. Spearheading the campaign to have them declassified is former Senator Bob Graham, who co-chaired the inquiry. The 28 pages primarily relate to who financed 9-11, he said last year, and they point a very strong finger at Saudi Arabia. To which Radio Parallax would like to add the comment, Duh. But in answer to the question, why are the pages still sealed? The magazine said that the official rationale is that they identify people whose alleged complicity was never proved. The 9-11 Commission followed up on this original inquiry, and they concluded in 2004 that there was no evidence the Saudi government or senior Saudi officials aided al-Qaeda in the run-up to the attacks, despite the fact that 15 of the 19 hijackers were demonstrably Saudis. Neither report ruled out the possibility that lower-level government officials were involved. John Lehman, former Navy Secretary under Ronald Reagan, who served in the commission, the 9-11 Commission, said the report found evidence that at least five Saudi officials helped the hijackers. 
and answer the question. So what do we know? The magazine points out that it's well established that Saudi Arabia's royal family, the House of Saud, yes, the country's named after the ruling family, had uh, very close ties to President Bush and his father, George H.W. Bush. Saudi investment firms poured money into Bush Sr.'s oil business, and the country provided the U.S. with invaluable support in the first Gulf War. Two days after 9-11, Saudi Arabia's influential ambassador to Washington, Prince Bandar bin Sultan, met with President Bush at the White House, and the two men smoked cigars out on the Truman balcony. Over the next few days, the Saudis were allowed to collect more than 160 Saudi officials, including relatives of Osama bin Laden, from around the U.S., as Michael Moore documented very well in his film, and fly them on chartered jets to Saudi Arabia. Some even received an FBI escort to the airport. Don't you think it's time the public learned a little more about this? Of course, we have to keep in mind that George W. Bush classified this in the second year of his presidency, and we're now in the eighth and final year of the Obama presidency, and Barack has not seen fit to declassify this document either. Yes, just another reason to be disappointed in Mr. Obama. All right, I got to go out with something a little more upbeat than that. So here's some comedy relief. The DEA and other anti-drug fanatics have tried very, very hard for many, many years to explain why it is that marijuana is bad for your health. And Radio Parallax would be the first to admit that heavy marijuana smoking can have a deleterious effect on a person. But can you point to something specifically and say that marijuana is ruining this aspect of your health? Well... The authorities have had a pretty tough time with this one, but God dang it, they're not giving up on it. Anyway, the people at natureworldnews.com have noted that studies show that heavy marijuana use apparently isn't as hazardous to your health as smoking cigarettes, to say the least. But there may be one exception. Yes, gum problems. Evidently, researchers down in New Zealand followed 1,037 people from birth to middle age, and found that more than half of those who smoked pot for two decades had no significant health issues other than periodontal disease, better known to you as sore and swollen gums that can lead to tooth loss. This isn't the strongest study in the world, because it turns out that people who never smoked pot still had periodontal disease at the rate of 14%. Now, we have to confess we're a little bit suspicious about um, the study author, Madeline Meyer of Arizona State University, because she was quoted as saying, we don't want people to think, hey, marijuana can't hurt me. She evidently pointed to previous research associating weed with, quote, increased risk of psychotic illness, IQ decline, and downward socioeconomic mobility. Well, I really don't know about that, but if you do smoke marijuana, Radio Parallax encourages you to engage in a conscientiously applied program of oral hygiene. And by that, we recommend the toothbrush, dental tape, and of course, the water pick. All right, that about does it for today's program. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax, and we'll have more for you next week, I promise.